before we start out today, I want to take a vote, all right? Uh, last week, we, we talked about a painting, and some of you have probably heard about this. Not a lot of folks in the early service had, but um, there was a painting sold back in December. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Pretty famous, pretty big deal. Anybody? Raise your hand. Okay, no, good. All right, wait, okay, just a couple folks. Right, so there's this, this painting sold, the most expensive painting in history, sold for $490 million dollars. Okay, by $200 million more than any previous painting ever sold. Okay, and the reason it sold for that price is because it was the last known Da Vinci painting that had ever been discovered, right? And so they had this opportunity to put it up for auction. What we talked about last week was this interesting, and isn't it interesting that this painting by Da Vinci, that is a painting of Jesus Christ, was bid on by um, basically it came down to three bidders in that bidding war. Once it hit about 400 million, then, you know, the game was on. I would have thought the game was on well before that. But to these guys, different story, you know. So you got a man, basically uh, Asia, the Middle East, and Europe were represented in the last three bidders. And isn't it interesting that a, a country who's typically more aligned with the Buddhist faith, uh, a country who is aligned with the uh, Islamic faith, and then Europe who's aligned typically with the Christian faith, are all representatives bidding on a painting of Christ, and that a painting of Christ is the most expensive painting ever purchased in history. Isn't it interesting, right? But, uh, and, and you know, I'm no art critic, uh, definitely no art buff by any stretch. I did grow up, however, um, and some of you may share this, knowing the names of all of the great masters, and uh, raise your hand if you uh, can share that. It's um, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, and Raphael, right? Anybody with me? All right, I don't know where Splinter fits into that, but at any rate, yeah. So I got a little bit of art history in there, but at any rate, uh, here is Da Vinci's Salvatore Monday, the savior of the world, right? Okay, now, we're gonna put another picture up there, and, and I want you to kind of compare this a little bit. You gonna get the next slide? Okay, um, how many of you have ever seen that painting on the right? Okay, oh, lot, much more people. How many of you know who painted it? Okay, a couple, good to go. Don't tell your neighbor even if they ask, right? Okay, uh, so I wanna take a vote. To you, which one in, in your heart represents, more represents your image of Christ? Raise your hand if it's the one on the left. Couple. Raise your hand if it's the one on the right. Okay, all right, good to go. So just tuck that away, all right? And we're gonna come back to that at the end of our conversation today, right? Uh, okay, so <clears throat> by a show of hands, how many people set a New Year's resolution this year? Let's not even talk about last year. Okay, all right, so a couple people, a lot of people were like, yeah, I don't like to fail. Okay, good to go. Okay, so I did uh, as well. How many of you have already broken your New Year's resolution? I got, man, Laura, you're awesome. Okay, good to go. Derek, they're like, yep. All right, so I'm with you. I already have two, okay? So I'm in good company. There was nobody in the first one. I was like, well, it's just me. All right, and I punted that one in the stands. So to give a little background on mine, um, on August 26, 2008, I encountered something I had never encountered before, and it brought a great deal of stress and angst in, into my life for um, that day on August 26. It was something called an improvised explosive device, and I can tell you it was both uh, very quick but also highly unpleasant, and so at any rate... Um, when I experienced uh, this new uh, entity in my life, um, 
I was a little bit stressed out. And whenever the dust and the rocks had settled and the air got back in your lungs and the bell stopped ringing and everybody was alive and you're very thankful, I turned to the one thing I knew that always gave me peace and gave me comfort. Copenhagen, right? Copenhagen, snuff, anything, whatever it took, right? That's what I went for. So I went to my drop pouch and I opened it up. There were two cans sitting on my little desk and my little hooch there in, in uh, back at the fob. One was full and one was empty. And I grabbed the empty can that day, right? Oops. And so I look at this empty can and I go, I need tobacco in my system right now. Okay. Right now. So I turned to one of my, or my squad leader and I was like, Hey, right. And you, I know we're, we're skimping right now, but do you have anything? I will even, you're just going to gross you out. I will even do ABC right now. If you got one in your lip, I'll take it. I just need something. All right. And he's like, Sir, that's it's not uncommon in the Marine Corps. I'm just going to be honest with you. But uh, I, he said, sir, we ain't got nothing. Now, they all knew that I'd never smoked before in my entire life and that I never would. And they were constantly trying to, me, to get me to. And so I think it was very uh, um, clever of them to not have any tobacco on hand. And he goes, well, you know, Rodriguez has got cigarettes. And so on August 26, 2008, I smoked my first cigarette and I coughed like an idiot and they all laughed at me. But by the time I got home five months later, or not even that long, three or four months later, pack and a half to two packs a day, right? Chain smoking it. And I was like, well, I'll quit when I get home. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not how that works. So at any rate, uh, rock along to December last year. Jordan had been trying to get me to quit over and over and over again. And, and of course it doesn't help. Jordan had also smoked for a little while. And then one day she was like, I'm going to quit. <laughs> Done. No problems. Never picked it up again. Right. I'm not that disciplined. Okay. So December of last year, I said, okay, I'm new year's resolution. I'm going to stop smoking. And so I, I'll be honest with you guys. I only made it about three weeks into January last year. Okay. And then I, man, I pick them up again. Here I go. But I made a commitment to her that I would not smoke after we were married. And so our wedding was on May 27th. So on May 25th of last year, I smoked my last cigarette. I've not touched one since. I don't even like the smell of it anymore, right? And that's, and that, that's good, right? Smoking's done. Yeah, here we go. Thank you. Sweet deal. There's one problem. You know what this is? That's Copenhagen or snuff or grizzly or wolf or anything I can get my hands on. See, about... Uh, two, a month or two after I quit smoking, I started to get this fear that I was going to physically accost or otherwise murder some of my employees uh, or friends or family because I was not a pleasant person to be around, right? My body had become so just dependent on nicotine that I couldn't break the cycle. And so whenever I set my New Year's resolution, I focused on giving up smoking. But the real root of the problem wasn't smoking, right? It's nicotine, okay? If I had to set my sights in the right place and I set the right goal, then I wouldn't be where I am, frankly, today, where I sat at midnight on New Year's, December 31st, 2017. I said, no more dipping. By 10 p.m. on January 1st, I found myself at the Texaco station going, yeah, Copenhagen long cut, right? <laughs> Not, what, however many hours, 22 hours later, there I was. And it's because, <clears throat> A, I'm not as this one uh, as I used to be, but also it's because I set my sights on getting rid of the wrong thing. I set my focus in the wrong spot. And I think this is true for a lot of us, uh, and, and not every time, but a lot of times who set resolutions or set goals and we set out to achieve them, is that you know whether we're trying to give something up 
or we're trying to move towards something, you know, to create a better habit in our lives, is that we, we chart a course for the wrong destination, right? We, we set our end point or our end state in the wrong place. And that worked out for Christopher Columbus, but it doesn't always work out for us, right? So <clears throat> smoking, I focused on, nicotine was the problem. But maybe the real root of my problem wasn't even that. Maybe it was that I was, um, when I needed calm and peace in my life, I was relying on something that satisfied the flesh to give me that calm and peace. But I wasn't turning to anything that would satisfy the needs and desires of the Spirit, right? So with that, if you want to open up your Bibles, the uh, scripture for today is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, and we're going to read that now. I'll give you a minute to get them open. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he'd endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. One of the byproducts of setting a goal whenever we go to break those old habits and change some things around is that it changes how we live, right? And it needs to if we're trying to break that habit. I know for me, my prime times of smoking was, and for anybody who's been a smoker or currently is, you know, after you eat, you want a cigarette, right? I never got to the point that I wanted one when I woke up, but I needed to, okay, if I'm going to eat, I, then I don't need to have cigarettes in my pocket. Or uh, late at night, I need to go to bed at this hour so I'm not tempted to walk outside and, and have one or whatever. I had to start shifting some things around, changing my lifestyle, right? And this doesn't just happen in the short term uh, for goals and New Year's resolutions and all that. It, it can be careers as well, is that you know, we, we set and chart a course to what we think we want to achieve, and so we start moving in that direction, and we shift our life, and, and we, we start changing things, and we start living in a different way in order to achieve that, but then maybe we get to that destination, we go, man, this is, this is not, I'm happy to be here, but this is not what I really should have been aiming for the whole time, right? Um, this isn't really where my fulfillment is and where my focus should have been. Or, as John Maxwell says, you know, some people, they're, they're climbing that ladder of success. Maybe it's a corporate ladder or otherwise. They're climbing the ladder of success, climb, 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 and they finally get to the top and they realize the ladder's been leaning against the wrong building, right? And that happens to a lot of folks too, okay? What I think has happened, just evil surmising here, I think that this in large part is what has happened to Christianity as a whole, Right? Not just, well, I mean, basically worldwide. People you know in, in other churches and throughout right here in, in our own hearts, I think this is something that we're suffering from, and, and it's the loss of focus. And you know what I'm talking about because you hear it. People who are, are uh, critics of Christianity, raise your hand if you ever heard um, somebody refer to heaven as a pie in the sky. You've heard that? A couple people, right? Somebody says, well, you know, I know you Christians, <clears throat> y'all are... It's trying to be good so that God will love you so that someday you get your pie in the sky, you know, that's your great reward, right? Or within Christianity, you, you hear other people say, well, you know, I, I just, you know, pray that um, at, at the end of it, you know, that I've, I've been good enough and I've done good enough and that, and that I'll get in, you know, and I get into heaven. 
Heaven is not our end game. Okay, we, we've heard this over and over and over again. Heaven is not our end game. While we're on this earth, heaven is not the destination we are supposed to chart a course for. Now you're looking at me like I'm, a couple of you looking like I'm crazy, okay? This sounds a little strange, a little backwards, doesn't it? Yeah? I'd argue with you that it isn't, but a lot of people believe that that is the way we're supposed to look at this Christian life. When we set our sights on heaven simply to get there, for heaven's sake, then it causes the way we live to change, right? And it starts to move, move us towards this, hey, I just need to be a good boy or a good girl so that hopefully someday God will let me in. And what it does is it begins to move our, our focus towards this works-based uh, approach to salvation, right? We, we think about the here and now as, hey, we just got to live on this earth. We got to, you know, the here and now is heaven's down there, up there, ahead, and I just got to do what I need to do here in order to be good enough to make it, right? There's the finish line. And the problem with that is, is we're missing the mark. A lot of you probably heard me say this. Um, Mary Lee's not in here, is she? Because the poor girl's heard it like 50 times. And, and so at any rate, I don't want to do that to her again. But um, the, I love this because it's a great way to get somebody's attention. There's a lot of people who've been in church their entire lives. I meet them all the time that still don't really know the truth of the gospel. Right? I mean, they, they, they don't. They're, they missed it. And one of my best friends in the entire world, one of the groomsmen in my wedding a month ago, and it broke my heart. I was visiting with him and his wife, and he made a comment to me. And I really thought, like he'd grown up in church, and I, I was pretty sure he had a pretty solid understanding of, of who Christ was and, and why we are followers of Christ. And he said, well, it just seems to me that the God of the Old Testament was vengeful, man. And, and he like, he... He let people know he was in charge. He's like, but God in the New Testament, he just kind of lets a lot of things slide. He's like, I, I kind of like the God of the Old Testament. And I, honestly, I said, okay, I love you, brother. I don't even know where to start yet. I said, but, but uh, let me ask you this. Let's say, even though the, the same, but it's complicated. I said, just answer me this. Who would you rather be judged by? God of the Old Testament? or the God of the new? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I said, well, I mean, if, if you, you like the fact that the God of the Old Testament, like, is that what you want? Is that you want the, or I was like, because you, you call it letting it slide, but that's not really what it is. And he's like, well, and I don't know. I said, okay. And this is what I'm talking about here. It's a, it's a when I heard this, I, I loved it. And it made me go, wait, what? I said, let me ask you a question. Scale of one to 10, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, how likely are you to go to heaven? And he goes, uh, what, man, why are you asking me this? I said, just answer the question. Scale of one to 10, how likely? And he said, I don't know, man. Why are you asking me this? He started getting defensive. And he gets up off the couch and he walks in the other room. And I said, just quit being stubborn and give me a number. And his wife said, you're making him uncomfortable. And I said, well, he's my best friend and I love him. And I'm gonna keep making him uncomfortable until he gives me an answer. And so the other, other end of the house, he goes, an eight. An eight, man, all right? And I said, okay, an eight, cool. So he comes back in the room, and I said, that's what I needed. He goes, fine, you happy? I was like, almost. I said, uh, what about 9 and 10? What's that stretch? You got a 20% stretch there. So what is that? And he goes, I don't know, man. You were my roommate in college. Like, you, you kind of know half of this, right? <laughs> and I was like, 
Granted, I said, okay. I said, so you think that those things that, that you did in college, that, that, that that's it? And he was like, yeah, and some other things. He goes, you know, I, I think I've done pretty good. He said, but, you know, you can never be sure. And I said, okay. Well, um, I said, you were my roommate in college, right? <laughs> and he goes, yeah. I was like, so you know what I did? And he goes, yeah. And I said, and you don't even know about the things I did in the Marine Corps. Like, I don't even want to talk about it. I said, but based on that knowledge of, of who I have been, ask me what number I am. And he said, okay, James, I'll buy it. What number? I said, 10. And he goes, and I said, I know what you're thinking. You think that's really arrogant. And he goes, yeah, man, actually I do. I think that's, yeah, like kind of want to punch you. And I was like, well, I said, so here's the deal. I said, follow me on this. I said, I, I would argue that you saying you're an eight is way more arrogant than me saying I'm a 10. And I said, I'd even go so far as to say is you are a lot closer to 10 if you say you're a one than if you say you're an eight, right? And he goes, and he just kind of stared at me. At this point, his wife turned and looked at me and it was just like, okay, you didn't make any sense. You got to explain that one. And I said, look, when you say you're an eight and, and when, and, and honestly, when I heard this, when he first asked the question, when I heard this pastor say this a long time ago, I was like, oh, I'm seven, you know, eight, I don't know. And I realized I didn't fully grasp this. When we say we're at eight or seven or six or nine or whatever, when we say anything other than 10, <clears throat> we're saying that when we get there, we're going to take this resume that we built up, right? All these things that we've done, and we're going to pray that the pros outweigh the cons, right? And we're going to show up to St. Peter, and we're going to go, okay, here you go. Look over that, and let me know how it's going to go. You know, I think I'm above, you know, a sea level here, and I think we're good, you know, and, and, and that St. Peter's going to say, well, it's good, because a guy four in the line back from you, he's going to destroy the curve, okay? So you came in at the right time, right? And that's how a lot of people look at it, like we're going to turn in this resume. I said, and that you, are, you can earn your way into heaven and into salvation, earn your salvation. I said, well, I say I'm a 10 because... I know that the resume, half of which you know about and half of which you don't, if I take that resume to St. Peter and I say, here, there's not a snowball's chance and you know where that I'm going to get through that gate if it's based on that resume. I said, but man, when you come to an understanding that that resume, Christ came, canceled my debt, all of our debts, if we go to him with a repentant heart, and he burned that resume. We get in, we are saved by grace through faith. There's nothing we can do to make God love us more, nothing we can do to make God love us less. And I said, and I could probably sum all this up, I said in this one statement, man, and I said, and I pray to God that this sinks in because it breaks my heart to hear you say it. I said, God doesn't love us because we're good, because we ain't good. He is good, therefore he loves us. I don't know if I made a dent. He didn't respond, he fell asleep on the couch. And it was the first time that I've ever really actively gotten a little bit pushy because I love him and I wanted him to understand it. And I've never really been that guy. I, honestly, I've always been kind of like, oh, you know, you know, uh, what you believe is what you believe. But the more I get to know Christ, the more I understand that people need him. And, and it, the more it emboldens me to go out and say, hey, man, like, I, I, I just need you to know what the truth is. You can make a decision from there. So when, when we come to that understanding, it, it humbles us. 
And it'll make us want to know him more because we look and, and when we finally grasp that this man went to the cross and if we were the last person on the planet that he would still go to the cross and, and go up there for our sins to pay that price. When we come to understanding, it makes us want to, know to, want to get to know this guy, right? But when we set heaven as our end game, it's kind of like this. I'm a little bit of a redneck, okay? Let's be real. And so whenever I hear classical music, I may say, well, that, that's pretty, right? That's a pretty song. But somebody who's got a trained ear over there, somebody who knows the history of the composer and what they dealt with in life, somebody who says, hey, you like that song? And I say, man, that's pretty. And they go, yeah, it's written by Beethoven. And I go, that's, that's great. And they're like, he was deaf from birth. Well, that's gonna make me listen to that song a little bit closer, right? With a different ear to try and understand and grasp why and how a man who was deaf could write such beautiful music. For me... C.S. Lewis, my favorite author, everybody knows it. I quote him all the time, I'm sorry. But uh, I love Lewis because I have, and I love everything that he's written. The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, all the children's books you may have heard of, they made into movies. I love all that stuff because whenever I read what he's written, things come out to me because I know his life, because I, I know that his experiences in the First World War, I know that he waited his entire life to finally met the love of his life in his early 50s to get married and to lose her to cancer less than five years later, a man who had given his entire life to the gospel, a man who was a sound atheist before he met a group of men and came to the faith and became one of the greatest Christian writers of our time. Whenever I know his story, then everything he writes has different meaning because I know why he said some of the things he did, right? When we set heaven as our end game, then we read a good book and we know the story and we know the characters. And we get a lot of good information about how to live, right? But when we get to know the author, then everything we've read in that book begins to take on a new meaning. Every sentence in that book begins to flesh out and speak to us in a different way. We begin to see when we understand that it's not just a book, an instruction manual for life, when we see that it is a story of rescue and redemption, and it is a masterfully weaved or woven plot from beginning, from all the way from in the beginning, God said to when Jesus says in Revelation, behold, I'm coming soon. All the way and in between is all one giant, very <clears throat> intimately and masterfully woven story. It's not an instruction manual. And whenever we get to the point <clears throat> as we come to know the author more and more and come into personal relationship with him, then that instruction manual, that it, what it was before, and everything we read in it, that information begins to transition in our hearts and becomes, begins to come, become something different and that is transformation. And as it says, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, right? And let this set in. The greatest desire of the creator of the universe, God himself, his greatest desire more than anything else is to have a personal relationship with you and me. People say, well, I think he wants world peace. Okay, how does he get that? By working through the hearts of men and women. How does he get those? Right? Through personal relationship. Jesus in John 10, 10, if we can get the next slide up there, said this, 
<clears throat> the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, you hear this a lot in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. See, Jesus said you're supposed to live abundantly and have all those great things and the Mercedes and the blah, 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 right? And it's taken out of context. Jesus is talking about the present, the here and now. He doesn't want us to rock along looking forward to the day whenever we meet him in heaven. He wants us to focus our gaze on him now, the author and perfecter of our souls. C.S. Lewis said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. I'm going to build on that a little bit. When we aim at Christ and we enter into that abiding relationship with him now in our lives, regardless of what stage we are in our lives, <clears throat> walking through the pearly gates is not going to be a question or concern. It'll be a given. And walking on this earth won't be nearly as rough because we'll know that we're not walking alone. The beauty of coming to know him on this earth is that he will always continuously reveal more and more of himself to us. We will never reach that point in time on this earth where we say, well, I just know everything there is to know about Christ because there's too much depth to him. There's so much more to learn. And the more and more he's going to reveal to us at certain times in our lives, it's not until we get to heaven that we will know him perfectly. John 17, 3 says, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Heaven is not our end game. Jesus Christ is. If that man who purchased the painting for $490 million had had his focus in the right place, just think about this. If he had cared more about who the painting was of instead of who painted it, then he may have done something a little bit different with $490 million. A simple change in focus. Not to the pride of being able to own the last da Vinci on earth, but the humility in going, hey, I know that guy in that painting, and I know he loves me, and he's given me something more valuable than anything I could buy. Let's just see one example of what he could have done with it. Maybe if he'd known the guy in the painting, According to this estimate, 50 bucks a year will feed a school-aged girl for that entire year, $50. So anybody want to do some quick math on how many kids that could feed for an entire year, $490 million? <clears throat> Next slide. It's a lot of kids who don't go hungry. And you can break that down and you could say, feed them for five years. Still be a lot of kids getting fed for five years or 10 years. 490 million simply if the man had cared more about who was in the painting instead of who painted it. <clears throat> so how do we get there? Jesus had a pretty good quote about it. But honestly, I think if we had just listened to the wisdom that just sat right up along this altar earlier, the wisdom of the little ones who just got their first official Bible. <clears throat> In the first service this morning, Thea asked the kids, what do we know about God's word? Listen to this truth. It's true. <laughs> Solid. It's God's word. Solid. Jesus died for us. It makes us be nicer people. It's God's word from the kids just a little bit ago, and I missed a couple of them, and I apologize. It helps us communicate with God. And then one of them said, 
Everything in it is real. From the mouths of babes. And that's what Christ said. We can get that next slide up there. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. One of my other favorite authors is George MacDonald, and he took Jesus' words and he turned it into a different quote. And I, I think it kind of, it, it fleshes it out and gives us a different perspective on it. I want to throw that up here now because it helps me understand more of what Christ was saying there. The wise and prudent must make a system and arrange things to his mind before he can say, I believe. The child sees, believes, obeys, and knows he must be perfect as his father in heaven is perfect. If an angel seeming to come from heaven told him that God had let him off, that he did not require so much of him but would be content with less, the child would at once recognize, woven with the angel's starry brilliancy, the flicker of the flames of hell. In order to come to him in that abiding relationship, once we get our focus in the right place, we have to know and believe that he is a good father. And as a good father, he wants his children to approach him as such. Not need an explanation, but just trusting him. Not needing a reason, but just obeying and trusting what he's commanded us to do. Believing and taking him at his word for who he said he was in this. Let's go back to those paintings. There they are. Some of you like the painting on the left. That's awesome, and, I, and I, you got like some art history, and, and you think it's beautiful. That's fantastic. Me personally, I see a pale-faced altar boy. Sorry, um, as McDonald says, a, a wintry shine of effeminate beauty. Right? I'm, I'm not even totally sure if that's not the Mona Lisa, but at any rate, <laughs> that that's just me. That's just what I see. Okay, and for 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 the art, like the, the art buffs in the room, I apologize for that. Okay, I am a redneck. All right. So at any rate, but but that is what. I see, but in the one on the right, I see a shepherd. The first time I ever saw this picture when it popped up, I was like, oh my, the eyes, right? And there's a famous story about this painting, and that's what a little kid said about the eyes. But it was the same for me. I look into those eyes, and I see passion, and I see forgiveness. I see righteous anger. I see a love that, that, burn, that, that continues to burn for all of us. And I see a face that on the left-hand side looks like mine, but on the right-hand side is darker because he is the creator and the lover of every single human being, regardless of, of race, color, creed, country of origin, it doesn't matter. And there's a reason, I believe, that we see, that I see these things, and maybe a lot of you see that in that painting on the right, is because I believe that the painter of that saw the same things. Let's take a look at the painter of that painting. There she is. Akin Kramarik, eight years old. A little girl who at four years old heard or saw in a vision, God came to her and said, I want you to start painting. And by the age eight, he said, I want you to paint a picture of me and so there she is with her masterpiece. 
She wasn't seeking fame or fortune. She wasn't trying to be the best artist in the world. She wasn't looking for any of that at age four or at age eight. She was simply painting a picture of the father she loves, of a man she knows, a man she's met, and whom she knows loves her. We see when we come to him, the faith of a child, the masterpieces that can be accomplished through him. And this finally is the latest picture of her and the latest picture of her painting with Christ. Oh, Christ. There she is. 22 years old. You notice something about that painting, and this is key here. It's clear, it's more detailed, the color is more vibrant. It almost looks like somebody snapped a picture of him, doesn't it? It's exactly how. He wants it to be in exactly how it can be in our lives. The more we get to know him, the clearer he gets, the more vibrant the color in our lives, of his presence in our lives, it becomes. The more apparent his work in our lives it becomes, and the more we get to know him. And it'll continue to get clearer and clearer and more intimate in our relationship with him until that day when we get the icing on the cake and we take the step through the gate and enter into eternity with him forever. All he wants us to do now is come and see. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that today that I did not get in the way of your word. Lord, I, I pray that as the people go from this place today that they see you in a, in a light and understanding that that you have canceled our debt. You paid that price. And for that, we need to be humble. And that you want us to come to you and, and enter in an abiding relationship. You just want to get to know us, Lord. And I lay that on, I want to ask you, lay it on people's hearts as we go from this place. And as they meet people this week who need your love and your light and your grace, Lord, I just ask you that they have the strength to share you with that person. And Lord, uh, our real worship starts when we leave this place, so I pray that they have a great week of worship. And then we pray. Amen. We have reached the point in our service where, as our kids come back in, we have the opportunity to give back out of the gifts that we have received from Christ. Um, we serve a generous God, and we are called to be generous. We, your giving makes a difference. I say that every week, and it is true. Um, over the past couple of months, you've seen um, your gifts in action, and you've seen how we've been able to um, impact the community and continue worshiping here at Thank you, and um, those of you that have that have been generous.